beginning a new series today entitled The Power of the Gospel. Uh, these will be my final four sermons as the associate pastor here at RBC. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about four of my favorite passages from Scripture. Uh, but actually, the series is based more on just my favorite passages. It's actually based on a question, a question that I have wrestled with for the last year and a half, and I know that many of you have thought about as well. The series will look at this question. Does the gospel really change everything? Does the gospel really change everything? This morning's reading was from 1 Corinthians 15, but a surprise, that is not the passage of scripture for this morning's sermon. No, that is the scripture to introduce this series. I chose it because it summarizes the gospel, and we need to remember what the gospel is before we talk about how it could change anything. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 summarizes the gospel quite nicely. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, who is the subject of this gospel? Well, it is Christ. It is not you, and it is not me. It is Christ who died, it is Christ who is buried, and it is Christ who is raised again. We are the object of the gospel. Christ died for us and for our salvation. Do you see the movement in the gospel? We go from death and burial to resurrection. We go from the death on the cross to the victory at the empty tomb. We have Good Friday on one hand, and we have Easter on the other. The movement is from death to life. And it is crucial that we understand this movement because it goes against our thinking. In the gospel, death precedes life. We have a descent We have the descent of the incarnation of God becoming man. We have the the descent of Christ going into the grave. But that's not the end of the story. We have the ascent. We have Christ conquering the grave. And we have him returning to heaven to intercede on our behalf. We can think of this in two words. Humiliation and exaltation. We see this movement throughout all of scripture. Think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. His humiliation was that he was sold into slavery and thrown into prison. His exaltation was that he became a prince. Humility and exaltation. But now we must ask ourselves not what is the gospel, but does this gospel of death to life change everything? This morning's sermon is entitled Gospel Comfort. And to begin exploring that question about does the gospel really change everything, we're going to look at my favorite passage of Scripture. And that passage is Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, if you have the the pew hymnal there, it is page 614, I think. I just checked one. I didn't check all of them. Uh, There are many reasons why Isaiah 54 is my favorite passage of Scripture. Uh, One of them, uh, the least significant of them all, is it is the only Old Testament prophet that is quoted by St. Paul and also Earl Simmons. Does anybody know who Earl Simmons is? You might know him by his rap name, DMX. Do you guys know who DMX, the uh, New York City rapper? Well, Paul quotes the first verse of Isaiah 54 in Galatians 4, and DMX quotes the last verse in one of his songs. And this is also the passage of scripture that was read at our wedding. Uh, Verse 10 was our theme verse, and that was the devotional from our pastor. 
The third and the main reason why Isaiah 54 is my favorite passage of Scripture is because God has used this passage more than any other to comfort me, and I hope it will comfort you. The fourth and final reason Isaiah 54 is my favorite passage is because I like an underdog, and this passage of Scripture is obscured by Isaiah 53, the preceding chapter. Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament version of 1 Corinthians 15. It explains the gospel very clearly and gets quoted a lot more in sermons than Isaiah 54. Take a look at Isaiah 53, 5, if you have your Bibles open. It says that he, the suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crucified or he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds or by his wounds we are healed. So as we read and explore Isaiah 54, we have to keep Isaiah 53 in our mind. We have to focus on the gospel of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Because immediately after Isaiah contemplates the gospel, he gives us powerful imagery that he wants us to latch on to. This imagery he uses is going to help us do three things this morning. One, it's going to help us understand our situation prior to the gospel, understand our situation prior to the gospel. Then it's going to help us understand our response to the gospel. And third, it's going to help us understand our comfort because of the gospel, our situation, our response, and our comfort. So let's read Isaiah 54. I'll read, you can follow along. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncle and on all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. 
Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication for me, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, so first, let's try to understand our situation prior to the gospel. Take a look at verse 1. This passage is addressed to the barren one. Now, a barren one would be referring to a female who cannot have children. So this might seem unusual that this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, I do not identify as a woman. Uh, But Isaiah is using this imagery not just for women. He wants all of us to connect to the idea of the barren one. So what would it mean to not have the ability to have children in the ancient world? Well, it would not just be unfortunate or inconvenient. It would be catastrophic. Without children, who's going to help on the farm to watch over the animals and harvest the crops? Without children, who's going to learn the family business, uh, the family trade, and help expand the business or keep the doors open? Barrenness would have a significant economic impact. And when the husband and wife age, if there are no children, who's going to be around to protect them? to provide for them. Uh, There is no social security, so there would be an impact on one's safety. It would also be catastrophic for the community. No children and the population decreases. No children and then there's no army for self-defense, and it's easier for an army to attack. So barrenness meant catastrophe. But there is a deeper issue about barrenness for us to consider. Being barren is contrary to our human nature. God made human beings to be fruitful and to multiply. This is not simply a command, but part of our identity. We're to have children when we can, but more importantly, we're to be a part of families. Plants can multiply and be fruitful, but they cannot have families. Animals can produce offspring, but they don't get together to celebrate Thanksgiving or Mother's Day, and they certainly don't go on family vacations together. No, barrenness leads to desolation to loneliness, and to a loss of identity. Perhaps at times you felt like the barren one. Maybe you feel like you have a a barren career or a barren bank account. Maybe you feel like you have a barren identity, a life that is full of desolation, unhappiness, and uncertainty. But this passage is not done describing our situation before the gospel simply as barren. Take a look at verse 6. It says that the barren one is like a wife that is deserted, like a woman that is cast off as unwanted, divorced because of her barrenness. This is a woman that is reeling in shame and disgrace and desertion. This woman feels like the very face of God is hidden from her, and God has closed his ears and stopped hearing her prayers, that God has closed his eyes and stopped seeing her pain. This makes me think of one of my former students. Uh, It was not a wife that was divorced, but it was a student that was rejected by her classmates. Her name is Emily, and she was universally disliked by students and teachers. Uh, I have Emily stories for days. Uh, One day we had a special lunch. There were only six of us at this special lunch, one of which was Emily, and everyone was having a good time until Emily did something gross and inadvertent. Then every kid at the table got up 
and left. And there was even one little sweet girl named Bonnie, and Bonnie was a teacher's pet. Everybody loved her, and she loved everybody. But even Bonnie got up and left Emily alone. Emily was not a widow, and she was not a divorcee, but she was cast off. She was deserted, ashamed, and disgraced. But still, this passage is not done describing our situation prior to the gospel. Look at verse 11. It says that the barren one is afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted. Verse 14 indicates that she was oppressed and terrorized. Verse 15 says that her life was full of strife. And verse 16 says that she was ravaged by the enemy. The barren one is like a boat at sea that is knocked about by the waves and the winds, waiting to hear the words, peace be still, but they're not there yet. The barren one is like a city that is under attack with no deliverance in sight. The barren one is associated with emptiness and desolation, loneliness, loss of control and stability, affliction and uncertainty. And so is our situation without the gospel. But this passage, uh, just like the gospel of Christ, does not want to leave us in our barrenness. It calls us to respond, to respond to the gospel. Again, look at verse 1 where we see our, our first command, the way that we are supposed to respond to the gospel. Sing. Rejoice. The barren one is commanded to sing. I believe that a song of repentance is necessary for the gospel to be applied, but that is not the image that Isaiah gives us. The barren one is commanded to break forth into singing, to to cry aloud. It seems to be a song of victory, a song of deliverance, like the songs of Moses and Miriam when they were praising God after the Egyptians had been destroyed. So the barren one shouts a song of victory. But it is a song of anticipation, as she does not yet fully possess her redemption. So she is actually called to praise God in the midst of her suffering while she is anticipating redemption. And so we are called to rejoice in the gospel. We do not yet have our victorious crowns of our salvation, but we are called to sing in anticipation, even while we are suffering and waiting. But this passage does not just call us to sing, it calls us into action. Take a look at verse 2. It says, Enlarge the place of your tents. Now, Isaiah is writing to people who live in tents, and there's not many advantages to living in tents compared to houses or apartments, but there is one advantage, making additions to your tent. How do you do that? Well, you need to lengthen the cords. You need to set in new stakes and strengthen them. You need to sew new curtains, and voila, you have a larger tent, a tent to hold more children. Now, this is not a call for your home improvement project, so spouses don't use this against the one who doesn't want to expand your kitchen or anything. But this is a call to defy your circumstances. Imagine Emily, my former student, uh, not crying when the students have left her, but imagine her going to other tables to gather more chairs and bringing them back to her barren table, except she doesn't have any friends to join her at all. This is a call to respond with boldness. Take a look at verse 4. Fear not, or positively think, have faith, have courage. Something that is essential for the gospel to work in our lives. Revelation 21.8 lists those types of people who are not changed by the gospel and their end. 
It reads, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. But I left out a group from this list. And no, it is not Democrats, it is not Republicans or any politicians. It's the cowardly. Cowards. Those people who fear other people more than they fear God will not have the gospel change their lives. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. And how many will be consigned to the foolishness of hell for being cowards? Fear not and have courage. All who respond to the gospel with singing, with expanding their tents and with courage, they will be changed. They will be transformed. And this is where we find our comfort because of the gospel. The gospel changes the barren one. It changes the barren one and she is transformed into the fruitful one. Her identity is restored and it surpasses all of her expectations. The barren one will have more children than the one who is already married. The barren one will expand her tents, but the tents will not be able to hold all of her children. Take a look at verse 3. Her children will inhabit the desolate cities and entire nations. It is as if the womb of the barren one has overtaken the entire globe. The barren one has become the mother of all. Now imagine being the mother of all people, or an entire city, or just having an entire tent or house packed full of children. Does that sound like a lot of fun? Well, fear not, because verse 13 says, all of the barren one's children will be taught by the Lord. Now, I know that it is Mother's Day, but that sounds like a super husband. And in fact, it is. By properly responding to the gospel, the barren one becomes fruitful. And in verse 5, she is transformed from a widow into a new bride. Verse 5 says that the maker of all things is the barren one's husband. Now, I've been told never to use this verse to uh, comfort a lonely single person or somebody that's having marriage difficulties. If you go up to somebody struggling in their relationships and you say, there, there, it's okay, your maker is your husband, I've been warned that you might get slapped. But I actually disagree with this advice. I think that this verse provides tons of comfort for people that are single and lonely or going through marriage difficulties. In fact, if this verse does not comfort you, uh, comfort a single person who wants to, uh, to get married or the person going through marriage troubles, I don't think anything will comfort you. Because the truth of this verse comforts the barren one, the one who is tossed about like a boat in the storm. The truth of this verse comforts all of the Emilies of this world that are abandoned during special lunches. In every situation that you will ever go through, the gospel has the power to change everything about you. You are the object of the gospel, not your situation. Christ is the subject, and yes, the gospel can really change you. This is the comfort of the gospel. Yes, you may be in a very challenging situation, maybe like the days of Noah in verse 9, but the rainbow in the sky is still for you. It is your wedding ring, and your marriage is to the Creator. But even if the rainbow stops shining, and the mountains crumble in verse 10, God's steadfast love shall not depart, and God's covenant of peace shall not be removed. The gospel will never stop transforming 
The same way that Jesus Christ transformed the woman at the well, so does he transform the barren one. I once knew a very difficult woman. Uh, Not my wife, not my mother, and someone far more difficult than Emily. I was very mad at this person, and I imagined her as the worst thing that I could think of. Dog poop on the bottom of a boot. Uh, That might seem immature, but I taught elementary school for seven years, and that's about as bad as it gets. And as I was thinking of this person in that demeaning way, I believe God spoke to me. And he said, yes, but I still love her. Your maker is your husband. By properly responding to the gospel, the barren one is transformed. She goes from being barren to fruitful, from being a widow to a new bride. And she is transformed from a storm-tossed city into a beautiful, secure city. Take a look at verse 11. Her stones will be placed in intimity. Her foundations will be made of sapphires. Her pinnacles, agate, and her gates, carbuncles. All of her walls will be precious stones, like the precious stones of a priestly vestment. So the entire city will radiate with priestly beauty. And what about the streets of this city? Why, the streets of this city will be paved with gold. Because Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 25, and 26 that the barren one is heaven. Not the old Jerusalem that we can find on a map, but the new Jerusalem, the one that is in heaven. The barren one has been transformed. Heaven is the Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem that is above is not a mistake. She is the true Sarah, the true mother. And she is our true mother. She is a mother of strength and power and courage. She is a mother of freedom and transformation. She is a mother of comfort, of gospel comfort. No enemy can overcome her. No man can cast her aside. No person can shame her and no weapon can thwart her. And the barren one is no longer barren. And we, like a fetus being formed in utero, So are we, still being formed by our mother, awaiting our birth into heaven. And how should we be formed and transformed by our mother? Well, that will be our discussion for next week. But in Isaiah 54, we see that the gospel comforts. The gospel comforts the barren one by promising her a transformation into a fruitful one. The gospel comforts the widow by promising a transformation into a bride. And the gospel comforts the storm-tossed by promising to change her into something beautiful and secure. The gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed heaven itself, and heaven is our ultimate mother. So what about you? Will you let the gospel of Jesus Christ transform everything about you? And will you receive the comfort of the gospel? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen.